Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. You see, that's what happens when you start reading something else and you say, oh, I have a show that I have to do. But anyway, this is Greg Rasheed, the host of the Root and Root Show. We heard every Friday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and also Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we try to bring the best as far as history, news, music, from the genres of jazz, gospel, country, blues, hip-hop, soul, you name it. And, you know, I was actually sitting here reading the Malcolm X Encyclopedia, which is a story in itself, and I said, my goodness, I have to do a show. So anyway, let's get this show going, and we're going to play right now because this will fit the theme of the show. We're going to do Big Bill Broomsey from 1952, and we're going to do Black, Brown, and White. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. This little song that I'm singing about, people you know it's true. If you black and got to work for a living now, what they would say to you to say, if you was white, you'd be all right. If you was brown, stick around. But as you black, oh brother, get back, get back, get back. I was in a place one night, they was all having fun. They was all buying beer and wine, but they would not sell me none. They said, if you was white, be all right. If you was brown, stick around. But as you black, oh brother, get back, get back, get back. He went to an employment office, the number that I got in line. They called everybody's number, but they never did call mine. They said, if you was white, be all right. If you were brown, stick around. But as you black, oh brother, get back, get back, get back. Me and a man is working side by side. This is what it meant. They was paying him a dollar an hour. They was paying me 50 cents. They said, if you was white, be all right. If you were brown, Stick around, but as you black, oh brother, get back, get back, get back. I hope built this country, and I fought for it too. Now I guess that you can see what a black man have to do. This is if you was white, she's all right. If you was brown, stick around, but as you black, oh brother. Get back, get back, get back. I hope win sweet victory with my little flying hole. Now I want you to tell me, brother, what you're going to do about the old Jim Crow. Now if you're white, she's all right. If you're brown, stick around. But if you're black, oh, brother, get back, get back. All right, and that was Big Bill Broomsey, Black, Brown, and White. 
and it talks, as you heard him, and he mentioned Jim Crow. And the reason I played that because it fits the mode of the theme of the first part of this show this evening, because I'm honored to have on the show this evening an author. She is the professor, associate professor of history at Immaculata University in Pennsylvania. She lives in Delaware, and this is I'm talking about Sarah L. And Sarah, I hope I don't... Um, Mess up your last name, but Sarah L. Trimbanus? Trimbanus? Uh, Trimbanus, actually. It's one of those um, Ellis Island names that got mixed up coming over, so it's it's not a oh. <laughs> a common one. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, it's not, you know, not, not your fault, but you have written a great book here. It's The Setup Men, Race, Culture, and Resistance in Black Baseball. So McFarland Press, and this was you can join in at 424 Six seven five eight three one five four two four six seven five eight three one five. And first of all, you know, when I first got the blurb on the book, before I saw the cover, this was oh, this was earlier this year. When I saw the setup men, I naturally thought, being a baseball historian, that I thought you, would, you know, this book was about the pitchers that come in before the closers in games. But you are talking about something else, and I really like. I'm surprised no one ever thought of this before, but you, I want you to tell my listeners what you actually mean by the set-up men. Well, I'd be delighted to, and thank you so much for having me on. I'm happy to be able to talk about my book and be on your show. Um, so, I, yeah, talking about the set-up men, I am not uh, didn't write a book on middle relievers, although they don't get enough attention, so someone should probably write that. Um, but what I was looking at is, I was really looking at the long civil rights period in terms of baseball and what I was seeing when I was looking at the experiences of the Negro League players during Jim Crow is that they were really setting the stage. They were the ones who were taking the battles um, on that are going to allow Jackie Robinson to be the one to break the color line again um, in 1947. And so I wanted to do something to reflect the fact that they are, and they they were, excuse me, underpaid, um, undervalued in many ways, that we don't properly acknowledge their statistics. Um, and much like set-up men, middle relievers in baseball, they, they didn't get the glory, um, at least not enough glory in the because of Jim Crow. Right. And, you know, and actually – I would take it a step further because I think you imply this in your book, is that mm-hmm. actually they had to they had to set up men for folks like Martin Luther King and other yeah. civil rights activists. Not so much, you know, not so much the Jackie Robinsons of the world, but you know, just the whole civil rights movement. And that's why this book is such a for me. It's just it was just a great read, and I you know I've had a number of shows over the years on the Negro Leagues, and I love talking about it, but always I do this because there's an underlying current in the whole story of the Negro Leagues, and you capture it in this book, and I just am grateful to have you on here to, you know, just talk about this. Oh, thank you. I think, you know, it always reminds me of a Ralph Ellison quote uh, in Going to the Territory. He talks about how if you look at athletes, you see people who are cultural heroes who can create real social change, and I, I think that's 
what these men did under very difficult circumstances. And like you point out, and hopefully as I do too in the book, is that they, they really are paving the way not just for Jackie, um, although that's the immediate uh, outcome, but also for school desegregation, for all of the different changes that happened during the 1950s and 1960s, and all of the leaders who came um, to prominence at that point. Yeah, and this is during the era of Jim Crow, and you know, and I'm glad you know you still, you bring up some articles and some pictures. I wish we had you know, some television to show some of the pictures that you have in the book. But talk about the resistance from the newspaper reporters, mainly first of all the white reporters, as far as the issue of integration. And I want you to talk about one in particular that was really. He was seen. He 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 seen. Some people called him progressive, and but he mm-hmm. actually wasn't. And I'm talking about. Uh, I think it was Jimmy Powers. Yeah, Jimmy Powers in New York. Absolutely. Yeah, he was one of the most fascinating characters, and I really shouldn't call him a character, but writers to look at, because I would read things in the black press about how he was a champion for integration. That he was, you know, basically painting him as one of the good guys. And then you go and you look at his weekly columns, and they're just filled with these horrifying illustrations, um, some of which I couldn't get the permissions for a copyright to put in my book. But, you know, he would have these racist jokes illustrated with those kind of stereotypical images of black athletes as gorilla-like or like a Sambo figure. Um, and so at the same time that he's saying, yes, absolutely, or at least he's answering queries by saying there should be integration, it's more complicated than that. He's, he wants or thinks there should be allowed African Americans in white Major League Baseball, but he's not progressive in terms of his treatment or beliefs about racial equality. That's just not where he is. So I, I think it's important, often we look at the past, we look for heroes and it's often much more complicated than that. And Powers is a good example of that. He was, in some instances, saying all the right things in terms of being racially progressive, but at the same time he was a, you know, I don't want to say a victim because he wasn't a victim, but he um, had his own prejudices, and he was not shy about parading those, um, whether it be in off-color jokes or in... Remarks within his column. Right, and you know, it's it's just amazing. You know, it's just amazing. There were folks like that who would be considered progressive and different, but at the same time, they were out and out. You put it nicely, as you're saying, more or less, just this out and out racist. Now, talk about also, you know, there was a you really captured this. The reason why. There was this contrast in some of these magazines and newspapers as far as these images of mm-hmm. black men playing baseball. I just want you to talk about not so much the players but the average person. These pictures that you talk about in the book. And basically, you know what I'm talking about. Basically, there's some pictures of where you see one of a just a group of white men playing baseball and they know mm-hmm. what they're doing, and then. The next picture yeah. you have are African-American men, and they don't even know, you know, you can see by the picture, they have no clue of what they're doing. Talk talk about that. Yeah, I, I think that was one of the ways in which 
white baseball and the culture around white baseball in the 1880s really conspired together to push out African Americans from the uh, kind of standard professionalized game. And so one of the things I found as I looked back into the 1880s at old Courier and Ives prints, which were really popular at the time. You know, they would be painted and people printed and people would buy them for their homes. And they employed this artist named Thomas Worth who made this series of dark town comics, they were called, where they showed African Americans in different uh, scenarios and they were always completely inept. So in the baseball one, you're talking about one guy's falling all over himself, there are people in the outfield who are just sitting down, no one's at position, they're not holding the you know, the bats right, they're all drawn in these exaggerated caricatured stereotypes. And then in contrast, the famous baseball picture that Courier and I have put out about white baseball is the Elysian Fields. It's this beautifully manicured green grass with these, you know, very professional looking players. And numerous historians have kind of argued that one of the things that white owners did to gain legitimacy for their sport in the 1880s was to drive out African Americans from the game by not renewing contracts. And I think that the cultural aspect of it was really important because that's how they sold it to the public. They reinforced that idea that professional baseball, professionalism was something for white athletes. And that had negative repercussions obviously, all the way up for 60 years. Right, certainly. And that's part of that whole, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we've talked about this on this show many times, about that whole, at the, especially in the 19th century, the late 19th century, early 20th century, the whole issue of Christian, um, Christian masculinity. Muscular Christianity. Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And talk, talk a little yeah. more about that. Yeah, so muscular Christianity, we actually often talk about it in terms of Teddy Roosevelt, although it it preceded him. Muscular Christianity was this movement that argued that in order to be good white Christian patriots, one had to have a a strong body, that that was the key to a certain type of white masculinity. And so they really emphasized and put a lot of resources in developing sports and playgrounds and opportunities, particularly for white boys and men, to practice sport. Because they didn't see citizenship as extending to African Americans, African Americans were cut out of that movement as well. Um, So it all kind of comes together to create that color line. It certainly does. And, um, you know, one thing that you mentioned, you know, why I played that first song by Big Bill Bruins, the – black, brown, and white, because you talk about how, I guess it's uh, tricksters, and talk about tricksters in particular, but how tricksters actually on both sides of the racial fence try to, one, prevent African Americans from playing the game, but also how some folks try to get African Americans to play the base, play baseball. And talk, talk about that, in particular, the efforts of someone like uh, the manager of the New York Giants, uh, John McGraw. Sure. Those are um, some of the best stories of this era of Negro League Baseball. And probably the most famous story is the story of John McGraw. Uh, Almost every Negro League player who was ever interviewed uh, reflecting on 
what was going on at the time would talk about how John McGraw wanted to sign him. And uh, his biographer said that when he died, they actually found a list. His wife found a list of all the players he had hoped to sign. So we have some basis for a lot of these stories. But his most famous story is that he was really after a um, black player named Charlie Grant. He wanted him for his team. And so he convinced him to pretend to be Native American, to dress up, to wear a headdress in some accounts, and to try to pass as Native American because the color line was strict with black and white, but for Native Americans, for Latino Americans, it was much more fluid and flexible. And depending on which version of the story is being told, uh, when Charlie Grant joined the team, he went to go play, and in one version of the story, he was supposed to play against Comiskey's uh, White Sox. Comiskey got heard that he was actually black and then threatened to, in the words of the time, play a Chinaman if he wasn't removed from the game. Right. Uh, and that was enough that McGraw pulled him. And in another version, uh, which was reprinted in the Saturday Evening Post in the 1940s, they said that when he showed up, there was like a, in Chicago to play a game, there was a marching band of, of black musicians and that the black community made such a fuss that the basically it, you know, the jig was up, everyone knew. So either way, I, I think the important thing is that, or one of the important things is it really gets this idea of passing, which was such a crucial part of the experience for African-Americans in baseball during Jim Crow because you know many of them talked about if they could only learn Spanish, if they could speak with an accent, if right. they could perform some sort of foreignness, if their skin was light enough, they hoped or thought or had been told that they could pass for Cuban or Hispanic and could therefore enter the white major leagues. And there were often kind of rumors about people doing that. Right. And it's it's so funny because I remember growing up because I'm 61. I remember when I was a kid, a number of, I say it meant black men and women in particular, in certain mm-hmm. parts of the area I was uh, grew up in, Washington, D.C., who would wear turbans, who weren't Muslims, who weren't of any different race, I mean any different religion, but they would wear them because they were saying, they were East Indians, or they were yeah. either, you know, but they weren't, you know, but everyone knew they were African Americans. Everyone right. knew that in the neighborhood. But, you know, they were passing. They were passing in their own right. way. And it's just amazing. I know a lot of young listeners that, that listen to my show, and you can call in here at 424 675 I'm talking to Sarah Trebinus. Trebinus? Trebinus, you got it. <laughs> Thank you, thank you Absolutely. so much. Author of the, uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> author of the book, the set up men, race, culture, and resistance in black baseball. Got to promote your book. Got to keep promoting it there. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> but the thing, you know, but I know a lot of people don't, you know, they don't understand that concept, and they don't understand. There's something else that you mentioned that I know, and I've talked to younger folks about this, and, they don't really appreciate it. Frankly, some older folks don't realize this was going on. But talk a little bit about you discuss folks like Jimmy Powers and some of the newspapers, the white newspapers, and how they portrayed African Americans. But talk about the opposite 
aspect with African-American newspapers and this whole issue of supporting the race and also uplifting the race. Yes, absolutely. I, I think the black press is really interesting in this story because they are part of this older style, really, um, at least in the 30s and 40s. Uh, they're kind of symbolic of the 19-teens, 1920s race men respectability movement where um, I always think of the old um, African-American women's uh, logo, you know, lifting as we climb. This idea right. of if people behaved in a way that was considered respectable by society at large, um, then they could rise up. They could gain more of their citizenship rights that were being denied to them. And many black newspapers and black journalists really believed that this was their mission, that their job was to be activists, to work on part of the black community to make things better. And so the newspaper coverage is is with that specific political, human rights, civil rights goal in mind. So when they're covering black baseball players, they are not talking about things that are, you know, unflattering, just like the old kind of coverage that we used to have about presidents that hid all the dark dark things in their closets. Right. Um, it was the same thing with black athletes. So those stories weren't going to come out through the black press if they could help it. It also meant that to combat the visual imagery that was so damaging to African-American athletes, they took pains to photograph and draw and present black athletes, particularly black baseball players, as sterling examples of black manhood, as race ambassadors, um, that they were doing good work for the whole of the community and they needed to be shown that way as as gentlemen, uh, and they made a, a big deal of that. Black baseball players were expected not only to hit well uh, by the black press, but to behave, to perform as black gentlemen, because the rest of the race, the hopes of the race, were on their shoulders as they were swinging that bat and as they were going out after the game. You know, and it's so funny, Sarah, that that is coming back again. And I, first of all, I want to let you know and let the listeners know I don't agree with. This, but you know, there's a, there's still a movement about about the fact that, especially with young black men, if you pull, you know, if you pull your pants up, if you don't talk too loud, if you do this or you do that, you won't be harassed by the police, you won't be denied a job, etc. Without looking at the whole issue of this white supremacy, racism, and it, it's just amazing that that issue is still out there. It still cre- you know, it still comes back. And, it, and I can't even say in a different form. It's the same, you know, reading something from the 20s, the same thing. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's kind of shocking. I was um, looking back through some notes today to get ready to talk to you and um, in stuff that I covered about um, the mayor of New York, LaGuardia, um, he had tried to kind of bury a report that had been done about some race riots that were going on oh, yeah. in, in 1935. Uh-huh. And, you know, the the quote that was in the report he was bearing said that, you know, the problems of discrimination, health, jobs, housing, crime, police brutality, 
were brought on not by the African American residents but by racial oppression. And he was I, I think he was trying to get to those those same issues and that's in 1935. And that's really amazing cuz I think it was a was it Fraser that said that? Yes, it was Fraser. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's amazing. When I read that in the book I said cuz I had never saw I'd never had seen that quote by him, and I just closed my eyes a minute and just thought that 2015, 1935, 80 years later, the same you can just put the same quote in something and put another name on it, and it's the same issues. So things, even though there's, you know, and it's, even though there's integration in baseball and other things in public accommodations, et cetera, the issues are still out there. And that's really incredible. And that's what makes this book, to me, and anyone who will read it will see that it's current. It is current, what it is actually talking about. And I want you to talk about, too, the most famous player in black baseball (laughs) is Satchel Paige. And talk about the depiction of him in white papers and white articles versus black papers, because that's... Some of the pictures, I mean, two of the pictures you're showing here, it's really fascinating to see how he is portrayed. Absolutely. I think it was one of the more shocking things that I found when I was going through my research was the the golf. Um, Satchel Paige was someone who was known everywhere. If you were white or you were black, you, you knew Satchel Paige's name, whether you'd seen him play or not. And in the white press, what we see, and I use an illustration from the Bismarck Tribune from when he was playing um, up in North Dakota for uh, some semi-pro teams in the 30s, is that they they really depict him there. It, it's this odd contradiction where they're talking about his um, prowess, but at the same time they're depicting him in these incredibly offensive ways. Um, and they you know, can't seem to figure out um, that, that this is problematic. You know, they, they talk about his wind-up being like an Ethiopian war dance, that um, right. he is like, they show him as a, a gorilla um, and compare his strength to a Joe Lewis punch. I mean, they're talking about his his physical prowess, but they're doing it in ways that diminish his accomplishments at the same time. And and I think the white press did that frequently. And one of the most well-read articles about Satchel Paige during the Jim Crow era was one in the Saturday Evening Post by uh, author, and I'm going to forget his first name, but his last name was Shane. And he continually does that trick that we see in the WPA slave narratives and other documents from the time of making Paige seem unintelligent by writing his words in dialect and writing everyone else's words in more standard English. And by misspelling words that don't need to be misspelled, even if you are trying to get someone's accent, all of this to create the impression that Paige was little more than the sum of his athletic parts, that there was nothing going on strategically when we know that from the Black Press reports and from the reports of his teammates, you know, Page was always thinking he was the ultimate showman. He was the ultimate orchestrator of much of what was going on 
on the field and as a pitcher. And it, it really takes that power, it takes that talent of his away from him um, in the way that the white press is portraying him. And probably the wealthiest uh, athlete in the world yes. at that time, too. Yeah, Absolutely had a plane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, think about that. I mean, this, this is amazing. The athletes now who, you know, making millions that don't have a plane, you know, so he, Satchel was something. But it's it's funny because, you know, I, you know, you imagine someone reading these articles, uh, you know, a white baseball fan or something, reading this negative stuff about Satchel Page and the other athletes and kind of agreeing with it. <clears throat> but then there's the eye test when they probably actually went to these games and saw the Negro League players. And you wonder... I think... Go ahead. Sorry, I I think I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I I think so. I mean, we know that white fans were going to some of these games, especially in places like Kansas City, especially to some of the bigger games at Yankee Stadium. And they were they got to see Satchel for himself, and once you did, and once you saw Cole Papa Bell, you, you, to deny that talent is is just un, unthinkable. I, I think the other thing that happens is you have people like Dizzy Dean and Joe DiMaggio talking very openly about the fact that Satchel is the best pitcher they've ever seen, and that also gives legitimacy um, in the minds of many white fans. You know, and that's really, you know, it really makes you wonder, you know, what the writers, you know, as they're writing, the white writers, as they're writing this stuff, you know, they're sitting, you know, they're sitting in the press box, they're sitting at these games, wondering what they're really thinking, and how much pressure was on them from their editors to write this stuff. Absolutely, and on from the teams. I mean, this was the era of. Very much, you know, you had a reporter for a team and they were reliant on the goodwill of the owner of the team and the manager of the team to get them the access and the interviews and things that they needed. So I would imagine there would have been a great deal of pressure from that end as well. Oh, definitely. Now, you know, it's funny, as you were talking about, we were just talking about Paige and all the, the dialect and the just insulting language they would use in print. You see, you know, it comes up from time to time, especially in 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 the in in the NBA and basketball. That many times I have seen articles where someone will a white writer will quote someone a black athlete, basketball player, with some sort of what they think is hip hop slang, where the guy doesn't actually speak that way. But in their mind, that's what they're hearing. They're hearing yo man or something like you know, and it makes no sense. But there's still it still goes on. Absolutely, and I, I think the comparison. A lot of people have done some really good work looking at um, how African Americans in basketball have been given less credit than they should have because it's considered that they play street ball or play have playground moves and that somehow there's an unfair advantage and it's it, it's very similar to the ways in which people during Jim Crow would say that you know African Americans you see this in the 20s particularly in the local newspapers that they were too fast um, right. and therefore they you know shouldn't have access to major league baseball because it wouldn't be fair and I, I think this linguistic aspect is just another part of it is trying to 
put up some sort of marker that says certain people don't have the same legitimacy to have access to what is now a, a road to wealth and power. That's it. And it's funny that as you're saying that, I was thinking of something when I was covering the Broncos, Denver Broncos, when I lived in Denver for 20 years. Um, Bill Romanowski, the linebacker for the Denver Broncos, made a statement when he was caught using PEDs and steroids that the reason he did it is because he wanted to keep up with the black athletes on the team, that he had to be as fast as them. And the only way he could do it was taking steroids. So, And this is like 2003 when this comes out. So things don't, you know, they don't change, they change, but they really don't change. They're, they're they sugar-coated. And, uh, yeah. and, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, yeah, the other, you know, example that I know many people um, have have pointed to in, in recent years is also the, you know, uh, the articulate black athlete, right, that uh, oh, yes. a black athlete is, the, you know, well-spoken or that the, you know, the thinking white point guard and that somehow these are racially based characteristics. Um, I think we yeah, haven't come as far as we'd like to think from the times right. of Jim Crow and the eugenicists and the people who were, you know, measuring skulls and bodies and, and femur bones and trying to figure out some sort of racial difference there. And, it, you know, it's still, you know, the, what's the book of the G- the gene myth and taboo. There's a, these books are still out there. They're you know they're on the same themes, but they're all about you know black athletes having a certain something in their bodies and their makeup that makes them do certain things. And you compare these new books to the old ones, and they're talking about the same things. And the conclusion are, of most of these of books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, I keep interrupting. And all of them, you know, the I think the commonality is a a lack of, I don't know, ability or willingness to attribute athletic success to hard work, perseverance, all those things that we know are a part of it. Yeah, and one of the greatest uh, ball play, baseball players who played in the Negro Leagues, Willie Mays, he said back in the 80s that people always said that he was naturally gifted he could just step on the field automatically and do everything. And he said no. He said his father, every day, took him in the backyard, and they played for hours. And that's how he developed his skill. He said he was not natural. No one's natural. Same thing with uh, Irvin Magic Johnson. He said the same thing. His father took him to the playground every day for hours. And he had no, you know, there's no natural gift. It was just the fact that he practiced. And that's what it comes down to, practicing the craft. And that's it. And it's, and you know, and I have to say that the way you have crafted this book, and I use a bad pun, but it's really, you know, it's very short and simple, but it gets the whole point across. And I don't know if you purposely were trying to show, as we've been talking about, that every nothing has changed or not. Because I was wondering, did you, were you trying to really do that? That you know, what we're talking about in the 20s, 30s, and 40s still exists in the 21st century. Um, I wish I could say it was more deliberate than it was. This book took an awfully long time to um, get done. Despite being short, it was my uh, dissertation many years ago, and um, 
I started a job, had a couple kids, and so things slowed down. So when I, I started writing it, I, I certainly wasn't um, thinking. I was thinking historically, not so much in terms of what was going on in the present day. Right. Um, but I, I will say as I was revising it and writing a new chapter for publication, um, I had been teaching my students a, a intro class on the history of American sport, and I was much more thinking then about – the issues that still are with us because in teaching it to undergrads, they want to talk about what's important to them right now. So discussions of what was going on in the Negro Leagues were bringing us to conversations about respect for African-American athletes and what was going on in, in today's sporting world. So I, I hope <laughs> that that um, came through a, a little bit or that I put some of that perspective in, but it, it wasn't my plan from the beginning. I think it came more in the revising. Well, it certainly did. It came through with me because I, you know, I immediately caught it. And I said, "Wow, this is, you know, this is more than just a, just a history of what was going on during the Jim Crow era. It's talking about the post Jim Crow era and what is still going on." So I just am just happy that you wrote, you know, wrote this as a dissertation and put it out as a book. And I just want to thank you for being on here today. And if anyone wants to reach you, do you have a website or anything? Um, I don't actually um have one. I should get one up. Um, no. You should get I'm, one up just sorry, because of the I've pictures been... in the book alone. Yes, you know, you that would be a good idea. Yeah, and there were many that I couldn't put in because of um, copyrights, as you probably know. Uh, so many of the black newspapers went defunct trying to right. track down who owns which pictures became almost impossible. So there's many more pictures I wanted to include that I could certainly toss up on the web where it's not the same um, issue with with copyright. So right. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I will. I will get that. <laughs> I will get working on that, and I'm easily Google Googleable um, because, um, as I said at the beginning, my name is I. I'm the only one with it, so um, I'm easy to find. That's right. So, Sarah, I just want to thank you for coming on today. And uh, are you thinking about writing another book about the uh, black leagues, Negro leagues, or going in a different direction? Um, I'm working right now on a, a second book that's not on that. It's on uh, 1950s TV and looking at uh, teenage girl characters in sitcoms. Um, but oh I have goodness. on my back burner, um, I have been writing down a list of black journalists um, editorial cartoons who were all involved in, in sports writing in the 1930s and 40s, and I, I'd eventually like to work on um, maybe a, a collection of short biographies of each of them. They're criminally understudied. Um, we don't oh, have yeah. a lot of information on them, and I, I really would like to dig into their lives and histories, you know, all these wonderful men who created the editorial art and the columns that I got to mind for my book, I'd, I'd like to write about them. Well, I look forward to interviewing you again about that, because that'll be a great book, because that's not out there. That is not out there. There's only yeah, one I book I know of. that. tirelessly. Even... <laughs> yeah. There's only one book I know about the writers, but the artists and all, there's nothing. So that's, that's a golden field to, to get into. So, Sarah, I just want to thank you for coming on today. You've written a great book. Look forward to talking to you again in the future with your next books and also maybe meeting you at some point. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. I appreciate it. All right. You take care.
Okay, thank you. And again, that was Sarah L. Trembenis, author of the book, The Setup Men, Race, Culture, and Resistance in Black Baseball. It's on McFarland Press. And I have to say, and it's a very short book. It's not even 200 pages long, but it sums up the whole era of Jim Crow and what was going on, not only, as we say, not only in black baseball, what was going on in the African-American community. And I, you know, I know some of you out there saying, well, you're always talking about the Negro League. You're always talking about the Civil War. It seems like you're always talking about the issue of the Jim Crow era and race, but that's the whole it continues, as Sarah and I have been talking about, as I've said on many other shows on this program, these issues, unfortunately, continue. They keep coming back. They keep coming back until we change it and look at our history and make some make some changes. And as we were talking about, you know, it takes more than, because, you know, as I was saying about the whole thing about pulling your pants up and talking a certain way, that doesn't prevent racism from occurring. None of that does. That's the whole thing that I won't even – now, I have to say this. This is the whole thing that Bill Cosby and some of his books were talking about, and you see what's going on with him. So you can't – you know, it's more to it. You know, it's just more to it than that. And this book, The Set of Men, gives you an idea that the history continues itself, and it has to – got to change it. we got to wake up and change it. But anyway, we're going to get to more music here on the Root & Root Show. And I didn't even say anything to my friends out there who listen on a delayed basis on KUHS Denver Radio and Television, the creator of Henry Archuleta, who created that great station. You'll be hearing me on this show on Saturday and then the other show on Wednesday. So I just want to say hi to my friends out there in Colorado, particularly Denver. And we're going to get to more music here on the Root & Root Show. And I'm going to do... Because Sarah mentions in her book a song, Black and Blue. And this was a song that's all about what was going on during the Jim Crow era, and it's appropriate today. I'm going to do the version by Louis Armstrong. So let's hear that, Black and Blue, on the Root and Root Show.
black old men Wished I was dead What did I do To be so black and blue Even the mouse ran from my house. They laugh at you and scorn you too. What did I do to be so black and blue? That don't help my case Cause I can't hide What is in my face Most, 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 most Is my, most, most How would it end Ain't got a friend My only sin is in my skin. What did I do to be so black and blue? Louis Armstrong, because they want you to remember him as just this grinning, 
you know, just a happy-go-lucky musician, but he was he was very deep. And if you haven't read anything about him or looked at real documentaries about him, not the ones that just talk about the music and make him look like this guy who didn't have a thought in the world, check him out because Louis Armstrong is very serious, heavy, very heavy person. So check him out. But that was Louis Armstrong, Black and Blue, on the Root and Root Show. And we're going to switch gears now because this week was the birthday of George Clinton, the funk monster himself, the one and only mothership connection guy himself. And we're going to play right now, we're going to play a couple of songs by him. The first one we're going to do Atomic Dog. So let's hear George Clinton on the Root Root Show with Atomic Dog. Street. 
exactly where else but on the Root and Root show where you hear the long version of Cosmic Slop and the long version of Atomic Dog by George Clinton. You don't hear, you know, you don't hear the nine-minute version in particular of, of Atomic Dog, but only on the Root and Root show. So I hope you like that tribute to George Clinton there. It was his birthday earlier this week, and I hope you enjoyed that here as we're going to get some more music here. Oh, in the Root and Root show, and I think I'm going to do right now, let's see. Yeah, yes, I'll do the slow jams at some point. I think I'm going to do Bootsy. This is I'm in the George Clinton Parliament Funkadelic mood. Let's do, ah, the name is Bootsy. So let's hear Bootsy Collins on the Root and Root show.
Would you recognize the jewel for what it is when you see it? Or would you take it for something else and get towed the fuck up? Men come together for the common cause. To beat your ass just because there's a line you don't cross. Offending the boys. Why, of course, it's one selected for your headshot. I'm back in the yard again. The bar's calling. 15 sets of this to how you scrolling. Ladies like, damn, Papa, you looking right. I love to give you some of this pussy and I'm a dyke. I write when the energy's right to spark friction. DJ cutting and spinning the back mission. Break pop lock ticking. Poetry description for the motion picture reenactment. Activate a higher assassin. Keep it classic. Rap revolution. Every black yo pass that.
like I'm fat like that. When she bounces down the street, she's a whole heap of honey and ain't she sweet. Feels so fine to know she's mine. I like I'm fat like that. You can have all those lean chicks, tender and tall. But when it comes to mean kicks, a big fat mom is the best of all. After I get through working, I reach and grab my hat. Hurry home, don't want her to be alone. I like them fat like that.
somebody at home is falling down on the home front. That's because when these women marry these men, they have a tendency to take advantage of them. They forget about all the sweet things they say to get them, that they have to keep on saying them to keep them. Because you got a whole lot of women out there these days, just like me, who will tell a man anything in the world he feel like he might want to hear. going with the married man. And last New Year's Eve, I was lonesome as a naked person. But J1, the man came on in like he was supposed to. And I didn't mind waiting that one day. Because anything worth having is worth waiting on. So when the man came in, J1, I was right there waiting on him to tell him all them sweet things I know his wife hadn't told him over the holidays. And you can think of a whole lot of good stuff to tell a nigga when you're by yourself. So the minute my man came in the doje one, I started laying it on. I said, ooh, baby. Ooh, baby. Ooh, baby.
home on time, don't want it to be late. Sometimes it be kind of hard for me to do, but I force myself anyway. I tell him, listen to the clock on the wall. Hey, hey. Listen to the clock on the wall right now, baby. Tick on clock. Listen to the clock on the wall. Hey, hey. Oh, forget about the clock.
your name is, but anyway, <laughs> the grammar in that is not correct, as most of these songs are. But anyway, that was a uh, Nellie Tiger Travis. I played that before, and that's Mr. Sexy Man. And before that, we did TK Soul. We were doing a lot of uh, Southern Soul uh, music, as they call it now. But well, we used to call it just soul music. But this is TK Soul along with Nathan Kimbrell, Kimball, and uh, If You're Sexy, Clap Your Hands. Before that, we did Pat uh, Cooley and Cougar. And then we started off with Millie Jackson, the one and only, the superb Millie Jackson and the rap. And I hope you enjoyed that on the Root and Root Show. As we get to more music, yeah, I'll do some slow jams. All right, people want me to do some slow jams, so let me do. Let me go back in the way back, way, way, way back time machine here. We'll do the emotions and show me how on the Root and Root Show. I'm just a young girl. Dying to learn the way. Oh, mm-hmm. 
like ivory and find the one who loves you. Hope you have. If you haven't, you eventually will. And before that, in our Slow Jam segment of the Root and Root Show, we did the impressions that great Curtis Mayfield and I Loved and I Lost. You rarely hear that one. Yeah, anything On the Root and Root Show, we try to find music you rarely, rarely hear. And before that, we did Brenda the Tabulation, Stay Together, Love, Young Lovers. Then we did the Superbs out of California in One Bad Habit. And we started to set off with the emotions of Show Me How. Hope you enjoy the Slow Jam segment. We're going to do two hours of Slow Jams again very, very soon. I know you'll love that, especially my folks out there in Denver that listen on KUHS, Denver Radio and Television. I know you'll enjoy that. But we're going to get ready to get out of here now. But the next show, the next show is going to feature... Once again, Paul Marco, I'm looking forward to having him on because we're going to talk about a little bit of everything that's going on in the world, false flags, Jade Helm, you name it. But again, this is Greg Rasheed, go in love and go in peace. We'll see you the next time with Paul Marco here on the Root and Root Show. Take care and be very, very safe out there. Enjoy it. Enjoy your weekend. Take care. <laughs> 